Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to the Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. I'm here along with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, Happy New Year. Well, good morning. And how are you, Brad? Doing well. I understand we're going to be delving into the Ten Commandments over the next few weeks, but before we go there, there are some uh, relevant uh, legal proceedings that uh, you wanted to comment on. Well, the law is very relevant. You know, we're dealing with Constitution classroom, as we call it, and the Ten Commandments are the basic foundation of Western law. But as we look to those Ten Commandments, let's pause first, just to look to couple of very important constitutional cases that are going on in this country right now. You know, we have a issue right now that is dividing this nation widely, and that is over the question of compulsory vaccination. You know, it's not, not just a question as to whether you think vaccination is a good idea or a bad idea. And if you believe that vaccination is helpful and you want to be vaccinated, you're not going to have any quarrel from me on that at all. The argument really concerns whether it should be forced on people. And President Biden, back in September, made an announcement that he was going to be issuing orders to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, that they were to promulgate an ETS, as they call it, an emergency temporary standard which is poorly named because it is neither an emergency nor a temporary nor a standard, but it's a order, it's a law practically. But anyway, that would require all businesses that have more than 100 employees and all those who do contracting with the federal government to require that their employees be vaccinated as a condition of work. It does have a few exceptions in it. But anyway, a number of individuals, a number of businesses, a number of organizations have filed challenges concerning the constitutionality of this order. And the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which includes Texas and Louisiana and several states in that area, issued an order in which they said that this is unconstitutional. And they issued their injunction prohibiting it from being enforced. The Sixth Circuit, which includes some of the upper Midwestern states like Michigan and Ohio in that area, issued a very contrary order saying that the OSHA requirement is constitutional. So the cases were consolidated as their appeal to the Supreme Court, and as they're consolidated, then under the federal rules, if the Sixth Circuit chooses to invalidate the injunction issued by the Fifth Circuit, strangely enough, they can do so. Anyway, so they have done so, and the case is set for argument before the Supreme Court on Friday, Friday the 7th of January. And it'll probably be argued at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. And if you go to the website of the Supreme Court, that is ussupremecourt.com, and just kind of browse around on that website a little bit, you'll find where it talks about hearings and where you can actually observe the hearing. It's closed to the public in person, but people can watch the hearing taking place 
online, and I think you'd find it very interesting to do so and enlightening and educational to see how our courts operate. But it'll be especially interesting to see what Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett are thinking in this area. Justice Barrett had previously been unwilling to go along with the emergency order saying, I'd like to wait and see how this plays out as we hear the full case on its merits. Justices Scalia, I'm sorry, not Scalia, he is deceased, although wonderful justice, yeah, but Justice Thomas and Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch seem to be very solidly against what OSHA is doing. They feel this is a constitutional violation. And the three liberal justices, Justice Kagan and Justice Sotomayor and now the name of the other briar, they'll most likely vote to uphold the order. And so it is these three justices in the middle, Chief Justice Ross and Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett, that will probably be casting the decided votes. And so it'll be especially interesting to watch them and see what they have to say about this. Well, just Wednesday afternoon, the Foundation for Moral Law filed a amicus brief. I worked late into the night, the previous night, to get this drafted, and we spent yesterday, Wednesday, I should say, getting it into final form. And anyway, so we have an amicus or a friend of the court brief that we have filed with the Supreme Court, and we hope that the Supreme Court will find our brief persuasive. There are a lot of very good briefs written, and frankly, there are some good briefs written from the other side, too. The OSHA attorneys and the Department of Justice and several of the union representatives have written very effective briefs arguing that this is constitutional, it is legal, but I think the weight of the constitutional authority is actually against them. Now, what we've argued in our brief, first of all, we have noted that there's one reason that this case is going on, and that's that the administration has tried to persuade people to get the vaccination, and they have failed. Despite everything that they've done to try to silence their opponents, to deplatform their opponents, to ridicule them, to treat very, very qualified scientists and doctors who are opposed to vaccination, to treat them as though they are quacks and outside mainstream medicine. Despite all of that, a large portion of the public is not persuaded that vaccination is effective or that it is safe. And that being the case, the administration has had to resort to coercion. And that's what you do when you can't persuade, you coerce. And so that's what this case is really all about. Anybody who wants to get a vaccination can do so. But there are some who have chosen not to for religious reasons, medical reasons, other reasons. And I believe their choice should be recognized. Well, the first question is whether the federal government has power over health care. And the plain fact of the matter is, under the Constitution, they do not. We have what we call a police power. That is a reserve power that the states possess to legislate for the health, safety, and welfare, and morals of the people 
subject to the restraints of the U.S. Constitution and their various state constitutions. But there is no such thing as a police power at the federal level. The Constitution does not give the federal government any police power. The government's brief, the OSHA brief, tries to rely upon the Commerce Clause. But the Commerce Clause has to do with commerce, not with regulating health. And to say that because these workers are producing products that might be used in interstate commerce, that does not have a substantial effect on commerce, and therefore that's outside the Commerce Clause, even by the rather liberal interpretation that the court has given it in the last several decades. And if we can use the Commerce Clause to justify compulsory vaccinations, then that gives the federal government the power to regulate anything it wants to regulate. And there are no constitutional restraints then on the federal government's power. The next question then is, if Congress does have the power to regulate in this area of vaccination, do they have the power to delegate the authority of regulation to an administrative agency under the executive branch? We have a basic principle in constitutional law that that which has been delegated cannot be redelegated. If we, the people in the Constitution, delegated legislative power to Congress, as we did in Article 1, Section 1, all legislative power shall vest in a Congress, which shall consist of a Senate and a House of Representatives, then if that's what the people have said, that the power vests or rests in Congress, can Congress redelegate that to another branch? Part of the idea is that the buck should stay where the people have placed that buck. And anyway, otherwise, people can evade responsibility. So part of our argument on this is simply that the power cannot be redelegated. And there are some exceptions to the non-delegation doctrine. And let's look at those exceptions after we take our break. Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I'm enjoying your message about uh, the delegation of power as opposed to the assumption of whatever we want to do. Well, it's an interesting issue, delegation of power, because we do have many administrative agencies, the Internal Revenue Service and OSHA and many others like this, Social Security and the like. And Congress, when it passes legislation, that legislation can't be specific enough to deal with every situation. For example, we have the Internal Revenue Code, which Congress has passed the Internal Revenue Code based on the authority to have an income tax given to the Congress by the 16th Amendment in 1913. And you look to that code, it's maybe a couple of inches thick, but then you look to the regulations of the Internal Revenue Service, and that is those regulations are many inches thick. 
But those regulations are there to interpret and make more specific the laws that Congress has passed in the Internal Revenue Code. And they must be consistent with the code. And if you challenge a regulation of the IRS, and if that regulation is in accordance with what Congress has passed in the code, the court will probably uphold the regulation. If the court decides that no, that's contrary, or that goes way beyond what the Internal Revenue Code says, then they'll strike the IRS's regulation down as in violation of the code. But the basic rule that the courts have adopted in this matter is that Congress cannot delegate legislative authority, but they can delegate rulemaking authority. So what's the difference between legislative authority and rulemaking authority? Well, the courts are likely to say that it is going to be considered rulemaking authority, provided Congress has given reasonably clear guidelines to the administrative agency as to how that rulemaking authority is to be exercised. Now, there's, they just said something carte blanche like the Social Security Administration or the IRS or OSHA can pass regulations, can make regulations in this area. That will be carte blanche abdication of legislative authority, and it'll be striped down. If they say that Congress or the, the Internal Revenue Service or OSHA may adopt regulations, but then are specific about the regulations must be this, this, and this, and this, and provide some specificity as to what those regulations have to consist of, then it'll probably be upheld. Well, our argument here is that, well, Congress has established the Occupational Safety and Health Administration and has given them some authority to make regulations for health and safety. They haven't given specific regulations in this area. There have been a few passing references to vaccinations, but nothing that is of any specificity. And not only that, but another argument we make here is that those regulations have to be even more specific if it is an area that affects fundamental rights. There is a U.S. Supreme Court case, U.S. versus Robel, that says that the latitude that an administrative agency has to regulate considerably narrows if those regulations affect fundamental rights. And these do. The question of vaccination involves many fundamental rights. First of all, it involves the question about religious freedom. And there are some provisions in the regulation that do allow religious freedom, but we're not sure how well these are going to be applied. We point to the example of the military, and the military, well, their regulations on vaccination, which is a different subject, really, but when their regulations allow people to apply for religious exemptions from the vaccination, there have been thousands of people in the military apply for these exemptions. Not a single one has been granted. And that being the case, we question how committed to religious liberty the Biden administration really is and how these are going to be enforced. But beyond religious liberty, we also have the issue of bodily integrity. And in fact, we have cases that say that even prisoners in penal institutions 
have the right to refuse injections. And the liberty of a person who is imprisoned is somewhat limited compared to those of us on the outside. Not only that, but we have the Cruzon case and other cases that say that people who are terminally ill can refuse medical assistance, which includes injections. Now, if people who are terminally ill and people in prison have control over their bodies in this area, how can the government force people who are free and people who are healthy to get vaccinated? Here, the area considerably narrows, and we believe the court, there's a good likelihood that the court is going to rule that even if Congress has this authority, they have not properly delegated the authority to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And as the Fifth Circuit said, the president, in his order, can in no way enlarge OSHA's authority from what Congress has given it. So we believe there's a good likelihood that the court is going to strike the OSHA regulations in this area, the ETS, or Emergency Temporary Standards, down as being unconstitutional. Now, what will happen after that? They may try to draft a new one, but at least we'll be getting some time. Now, there's another case we need to look at here, too, in this same area, and that is Navy SEALs versus Biden. I spoke about this case a couple of weeks ago, and the foundation had just filed an amicus brief in support of the Navy SEALs and certain other Navy personnel that had sought religious exemptions from the Navy's vaccination requirements. Their, vac their exemption requests had been denied, and so they filed suit. And we filed an amicus brief on their behalf, and we argued in our brief that the Navy has given thousands, well, throughout the military, thousands of exemptions for medical reasons, those who have medical reasons why they don't believe they can be vaccinated, but they have not granted a single religious exemption. And so we argued, if the Navy is arguing military necessity, prevents us from giving these exemptions. Well, the fact that they've given medical exemptions mean they have forfeited that military necessity argument. Well, last Tuesday night, a federal judge just ruled that the SEALs are correct and that the Navy is enjoined, that is prohibited, for the time being at least, from going forward and discharging them from their positions or otherwise disciplining them for refusing to be vaccinated for religious reasons. And I love the way the judge put it there. He simply said that these people that said a lot of things that sound similar to what we said in our brief, but we can't say that's where he got it. But he said that these Navy personnel are risking their lives to defend the Constitution of the United States. Certainly, they are entitled to the Constitution's protections. And then the judge went on to say that, yes, the Navy offers religious exemptions, but the way they've handled it is nothing but theater. They let people file for exemptions, then they rubber stamp the denials. Those are the judge's words. And so this judge, Judge O'Connor of the Northern District of Texas, he was a Bush employee, but anyway, he has ruled in favor of the Navy SEALs. This will very possibly be appealed, but we have cited that in our brief to the Supreme Court on the case that's going to be argued Friday as well, showing that what this federal judge has said, that certainly deserves a great deal of consideration here. 
And if they can grant religious exemptions, which is what OSHA does, then we feel that they've undercut their whole argument that everybody has to be vaccinated. Well, we're under these 10,000 commandments of man, but we need to get back to the 10 commandments of God. And so let's look at those commandments after we take this break. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Well, Colonel, I've been excited. Last week, we talked about the impact of the Ten Commandments and and uh, basically biblical law on, on our own system of laws, but I'm happy to see you going into the, the commandments themselves. And this is actually going to take us some time, isn't it? Well, it is. And we're going to look today at the First Commandments. But as we do so... Let's go not to Exodus 20, rather, let's go to Mark, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27, although we could also look to Matthew 19 and Luke 18 for a parallel account. And when he, that is Jesus, was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, this person that comes running and kneeling, we refer to him commonly as the rich young ruler. I've given him a name, Richard Young, Rich Young, (laughs) and he's a ruler. We're told that he is a ruler in one of the three accounts here. We're told that he came running, which leads some to suggest that he might be young, and we're told that he has great possessions. So, rich young ruler, and he asked Jesus, what may I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, as we look to the rich young ruler here, we see a contrast between him and the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees who'd been tempting him and baiting him. And this young man seems to have a very sincere question. There's a lot of things about this young man that we would admire. He seems to be one of the best eligible bachelors in Jerusalem. He's the nice Jewish boy that Every Jewish mother would love her daughter to marry. He drives a really nice Ferrari chariot and <laughs> has a beautiful condo. He wears Armani tuxedo or not tuxedos, togas, and has a very good investment portfolio. Probably he is serving on the Sanhedrin. A lot of things that we could like about this man, but he makes several mistakes as he comes to Jesus. First of all, he addresses him as Good master. Now, what's wrong with that? Didaskalos, teacher or master, that's a germ of compliment. But as C.S. Lewis has said, Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic or the Lord. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. If I were to say, for example, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I and my Father are one, if I would claim to be God, you would probably cut me off the air before this program is over. You'd say, this guy is nothing but a liar. He's out to get publicity or something. Then you might say, well, but on the other hand, he's from Alabama. You know, they're in Alabama. Those people are, there's something funny in the water they drink down there. 
there's a lot of fanatics down there. Maybe this guy really believes he is God, in which case he's a lunatic. And really, if somebody claims to be God, he has to be one of those two things. Either he's a liar or he's a lunatic, except one-third possibility. Maybe he really is who he claims to be, the Lord. And what Jesus says then to this young man, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. He's not saying, as some religious liberals have tried to interpret that, Jesus would be, oh, no, no, don't, don't call me good. I'm, I'm just like everybody else. No, that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that either I am God or I am a sinner like everybody else. You can't come to me halfway. You can't just address me as a good teacher. I must be something more or I'm not a good teacher at all. But then in answer to the question that he asks, what must I do? Well, we don't do things to inherit eternal life. Rather, salvation is by grace. And then when Jesus says, thou knowest the commandments, in other words, what Jesus does in answering this young man is he turns him to the commandments. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and thy mother. And what the young man should understand from these commandments is, you know, I'm a sinner. I need the grace of God. I need forgiveness. But instead, here's his next mistake. He says, all these have I observed from my youth. In other words, he refuses to acknowledge his sin. And so Jesus says to him, there is one thing you lack. And this is what the young man's been coming to hear. He doesn't deny that he lacks something. But his mistake is he's thinking that as far as being righteous, as far as being acceptable to God, that he's probably about 98% of the way there. And he just needs some missing ingredient that maybe Jesus can supply that will put him up to 100%. What he doesn't realize is, no, he is not at 98%. He's not at 50%, not at 10%, he is at zero. And that we need God's entire grace. And so Jesus says to him, one thing you lack. Go thy way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. What Jesus is saying is, he's not saying you need to sell everything you have and give to the poor, and that's the way to get saved. You could do that and not get saved at all if you're doing so just as a work pleasing to God. Rather, what he is saying is, you say that you've obeyed the commandments? Let's see whether you really have. Let's see whether you've even obeyed the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. We tend to think, well, that's probably the easiest of all the commandments to obey. I mean, I may have lied a few times. Maybe I even stole something once in a while. And maybe I've broken some of the other commandments there, but I certainly haven't been worshiping idols. I certainly haven't had any other gods before God. Actually, this is probably, as we're going to see today and maybe next week as well, this is probably the, the most difficult of all the commandments to keep. And anyway, so what are you saying to this young man is, Let's see if you even kept that first commandment. You think you have? You think you have no other gods before God? Well, let's see. 
all those Armani tuxedos and togas that you have, that Ferrari chariot, all those things, your stock portfolio and everything, give all that up and just take up the cross and follow me. Are you willing to do that? If the answer is no, then you haven't even kept the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. There are other things in your life that are more important than me, God is saying, Jesus is saying. And you haven't even kept the first commandment. And the young man, we read, went away sour. And that's one of the encouraging things about this account. He understood what Jesus was saying, and he wasn't ready to receive the gospel yet, but very possibly he did at a later time. The Catholic Church has had a tradition that this young man is the same person that we later know in Scripture as Nicodemus. And that may be true, it may not. We'll find out when we get to heaven. But the thing to notice here is that, at least as of this point, this young man goes away sorrowful because he is not yet ready to receive Jesus Christ. And, you know, we look to the model of righteousness in the scripture, the average person of that time, if he were to ask who are the models of righteousness, he'd probably turn to the scribes, to the Pharisees, look at the way they keep the law, they're righteous, they're fully righteous. And yet Jesus says in Matthew 5.20, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. We violate the first commandment when we love riches and popularity and position above God. We violate the first commandment when we place family and friends and even country. And I believe in patriotism. I love this country. But if we place our country above God, then we are violating this commandment. If we reject God's laws, his values, and his standards, then we are violating this first commandment. When we value political correctness or tolerance or diversity more than the plain commands of God's word, we're violating this commandment. We're putting other things ahead of God. When we embrace moral relativism, because there is only one morality, and that is the morality that God gives, when we embrace moral relativism, we are placing other things above God. When we place the state above God, or the state above the church, then we are violating this commandment. When we think Jesus and Buddha are one and the same, or that Jehovah and Allah are the same God, we are violating this commandment. And more about the commandment after we take our break. our final segment of Constitution Classroom today here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Now back to Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. 
Let's continue looking at this first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the premise behind all of this is that there is one God. And throughout the world, we have seen polytheism, that is the worship of many gods. But scripture tells us that there is one God, and all of these others are either non-existent, or else they are demonic impersonations of God. But there's something a lot deeper here than just simply having a Buddha statue on your shelf or something like this, or worshiping Marduk. Why is it that monotheism is so important? Why is it that so many of our founding fathers in this country, John Quincy Adams in particular, would talk about monotheism? In fact, E.C. Wines, in his book, The Laws of the Ancient Hebrews, Wines was a Bible teacher in the early 1800s. He talked about a discussion he had, a group of people, with John Quincy Adams, our fifth president, an amazing scholar, and about how in this discussion, John Quincy Adams went off on a long monologue about how Hebrew law was so different from the laws of other ancient societies because Hebrew law was based upon monotheism. He says, I wish somebody had written down what he said, or I wish John Quincy Adams had it in writing somewhere, but as far as we know, he didn't. But why is monotheism so important to the idea of God? Simply this, that if there is one God, then there is one truth and one law. If there are many gods, then there's no reason to think that, well, Jehovah, the God of the Hebrews, has a law code that he has given. At the same time, Odin of the Norse also has a law code, and Zeus of the Greeks has a law code, and Jupiter of the Romans has another law code. So does Baal of the Canaanites, and Marduk of the Babylonians, and Ra of the Egyptians, and Ahura Mazda of the Persians. But no, the scriptures are saying there is one God, and therefore there is one law. And if we're going to say that there are many gods and many law codes, then why should we obey one over the others? Now, here's one of the really interesting things about this, is that if you go to just about any state university in this country, and probably in most other parts of the world today, and unfortunately, I'd say a lot of religious institutions are following suit lately, you will hear it said that monotheism came as an evolutionary development after polytheism, that man was originally in his earlier evolutionary states, polytheistic, worshiping many gods, and eventually that evolved into monotheism. Now the scriptures say the opposite. If you look to Romans chapter 1, we talk about how people rebelled against the law of God and against the knowledge of God and began to worship the creature rather than the creator. In other words, monotheism degenerated into polytheism rather than polytheism evolving into monotheism. That's the scripture point of view. And interestingly enough, up until about 1850, 
that seemed to be the view of historians, of archaeologists, of those who study pagan societies. Dr. William Schmidt, for example, who says in the 1800s, in proportion as we withdraw from the most primitive people and approach the semi-civilized ones, three elements, magic, ghost worship, and nature worship take deeper root, and finally overrun the ancient veneration of the supreme being to such a degree as to render it no longer visible. George Rawlinson, who in the 1800s was a professor of ancient history at Oxford, wrote, historical survey has shown us that in the early times, everywhere, or almost everywhere, belief in the unity of God existed. Barbarous nations possessed it as well as civilized one. It underlay polytheism that attempted to crush it, retained a hold on language and thought, had from time to time its special asserters who never professed to have discovered it. Steve Langman, professor at Oxford as well in those days, said, in my opinion, the history of the oldest civilization of man is a rapid decline from monotheism to extreme polytheism and widespread belief in evil spirits. It is, in a very true sense, the history of the fall of man. Rawlinson, the deity once divided, there was no limit to the number of his attributes of various kinds and, and grades, and in Egypt, everything that partook of the divine essence became a god. Emblems were added to the catalog, though not really deities. They called forth feelings of respect, which the ignorant could not distinguish from actual worship. Others have pointed out that if you look to the history of many, many societies, you find that the number of gods as their history progresses increases. That indicates an origin, origin in monotheism and eventually polytheism. Well, what is it that has changed things to make them suddenly decide that no man was not originally monotheistic, as the Bible says, and as just about everyone who was an expert in history and the like said up until about 1850. No, it's the other way around, that no man was originally polytheistic and monotheism was an evolutionary development. The answer is not some new historical discovery, new ancient inscriptions that show this, archaeological evidence of temples and so on. No, the answer to this question is, Darwin's origin of species and the theory of evolution. Not that there is evidence to support it, but Darwinism created a whole new world view that saw everything developing and evolving. And this view of the origin of the idea of God and gods takes that same form. But anyway, so that's how we've gotten to where we are today. It's the widespread adoption of the theory of evolution starting in the 1850s that has changed the way historians look at human history. And the result, as I see it, is dangerous because it leads to the denial that there is such a thing as the absolute law of God. And as we do that, we are in violation of that first commandment that thou shalt have no other gods before me. And looking at that, we see why that is so important to law. Because if there is one God, there is one law. And that law is above the laws of 
the state, the laws of the federal government, the commandments of the king and other countries, or the commands of the chief executive, the president in this country, there is one law that is above that, the law of God. We were founded on this principle. The Declaration of Independence says that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And the Declaration begins by saying that we are entitled to our independence as a nation based upon the laws of nature and of nature's God. In other words, this nation is founded on the premise that there is a God, that his laws are higher than the laws of man. Justice Douglas in Zorak versus Massachusetts recognized this when he said in that opinion that we are a religious people whose institutions presuppose a divine being. And in another case, McCulloch, McCullum versus Board of Education, I believe it was, in that case, he said that we are premised as a nation upon the principle that there is a law higher than the law of the state to which human law can conform, that part of that, he said, was that the individual has rights given by the creator that government must respect. And the whole concept that there is a God who has given rights that we have what we call unalienable rights come from the idea that there is one God and his law is absolute and that human law cannot violate that higher law of God. That's why we believe that rights are unalienable. If God has given rights, government can't take them away. If our rights come from the government, then government can take them away. And so the idea of one God and one law that that God has given, and one law that man may not violate even through his courts and his capital legislative chambers and his executive palaces like the White House. Even there, they must respect the law and the rights conferred by that one God. Human liberty depends upon that recognition.